Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and just before we get into the content for today's episode, uh, just a quick reminder that as always, you can check out In The Shift uh, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and and of course the website. Um, I'd love to continue hearing from you, uh, some of you get in touch with me directly, which is really awesome, uh, others through the social media world. Uh, There, of course, you can just simply follow along if you like to keep in touch with what's happening. Uh, Within the shift, there's the podcast, but there's also the blog, uh, and there are going to be some other things coming out in a a little while in relation to what I'm doing within the shift that I'm kind of excited about. So if you want to keep in touch and make sure you're in the loop with any of that, then uh, follow along through one of those social media avenues. Um, I also understand that for some of you, that might not be an appropriate thing to do, (laughs) maybe because... um, you're in a particular religious context wherein you don't necessarily want to see people to see that you are uh, liking, sharing or commenting uh, on something in relation that's really challenging some of those big ideas of the faith that you hold or that your faith community holds. Uh, and so if that's you, that's totally cool. I don't expect you to suddenly um, be outing yourself on, on social media. Um, but you can always email me and you can always sign up to the, um, the, email, the monthly email newsletter, Shifty Times. Uh, via the website. And uh, I would, of course, and I do, love to hear from you and the kinds of things that are coming up as we're having these conversations. And I call them conversations, even though obviously the actual podcast itself at the moment is kind of one way. Um, I really enjoy hearing from people and what they're thinking and what it brings up for them and what questions emerge and why it might be challenging or interesting or stimulating or confronting or whatever. So um, please continue to do that. Um, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, it would. So this is the third in the three-part series exploring the Christian belief in hell. It's kind of a heavy topic, right? And um, I hope you've been following along all right. Uh, I'm looking at the way in which this idea of hell has been formulated often within the Christian tradition and then really made its way into popular imagination. And some reasons why I think this idea, really the idea of eternal suffering, of eternal torment of some kind for the unbelievers or the undeserving or the unsaved or whatever category you're going to use, I think it's just really, it's an abhorrent and awful doctrine that is at odds with any kind of spirituality that is centered around the Jesus story in my mind. Um, now, if you're just tuning in wondering how I arrive at that conclusion, because you might be thinking, I thought the whole point of the Jesus story was about uh, dying so that we can uh, say a prayer so that we can get to heaven and escape hell. Well, maybe it's best for you if you want to follow the conversation to this point to go back to a couple of episodes, to episode 10, which is the first of these on hell, and then work your way forward from there. In any event, I think that the main takeaway to this point over the last couple of episodes has been that instead of the idea of the Jesus story being about how to escape hell and get to heaven when you die, there's actually something else being, I guess, offered to us, an invitation to us to live differently in the world. It's much more about the kind of life we live here and now. Sometimes it's a confronting challenge, uh, but it's about this life here. And uh, although... You know, you probably have some more traditional Christians uh, who do hold to this belief in hell as eternal suffering for the unbeliever. They may respond and and be like, yeah, well, of course it's about life here and now, and it's about avoiding hell when you die. And I totally get that because that's a point of view I held for many years, trying to hold these two together. But in the end, the tension didn't hold, and it's it's largely because something's got to give in that context. 
Uh, because ultimately, if this idea of hell as eternal suffering for the unbeliever is true, well, then nothing else really matters in light of an eternal, uh, an eternal future of separation and pain, right? So, if at the end of the day, if, if what's at stake here is the possibility of hell, of going to hell forever and ever, then really that's that's what matters, regardless of what else you want to say about it. And um, I want to talk a little bit today about why that might be a problem, what the implications of it might be at least. Um, so in this particular episode, then having staked out what I think is the best way to read the Christian text, and then the best way to think in relation to what it is that God, if you know, if God is up to something post-death, then what God might be up to. I want to talk about the implications of all of this, you know, what happens when people believe in hell as an eternal place of suffering for unbelievers, and what happens when people still hold to a faith, but that doesn't include that. So, uh, this is episode 12 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. All right, so this is episode 12, uh, part three of our series on what the hell. And uh, perhaps I should start with this. I am someone who has uh, researched, you know, my PhD research was really on the, uh, an aspect of looking at the relationship between beliefs and spirituality and social change. And I'm continually fascinated, not just by what beliefs people hold uh, and whether or not they're accurate or true, which is what maybe a lot of um, what I thought good theology was, was trying to figure out what is the right thing to believe. Um, but I've, I've been continually fascinated, not just about that conversation, but about the implications of those beliefs. What are those, what flows out from the beliefs that we hold? What kind of life do they encourage? Uh, how do they shape the way we see ourselves? How do they shape the way we engage in the world around us to see other people, treat other people and so on? Uh, because I think those questions are really important and they tell us a lot about uh, the kind of beliefs we hold and whether in fact they are healthy belief. Uh, and nowhere is this more true than in relation to the belief in hell for me. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer some reflections, and this is based uh, you know, partly on my own theological journey, partly on some conversations I've been having with people as I've been talking about this, you know, this kind of perspective of deconstructing the notion of hell, uh, some of the feedback from the podcast episodes that people have, have given me. Um, I'm aware that if you come from a pretty traditional Christian perspective, this this whole little series might seem like a lot. And it might seem threatening. It might seem like I'm questioning one of the big rocks of faith, one of the big things maybe you've built your life around, one of the things that helps your life to make sense in some kind of way. And I get that, and I've been there, and I understand. Uh, but my hope is that you at least allow yourself to ask the question. Because any kind of faith that is unexamined because we're too worried about what might happen if we ask that question or pull that thread, well, that faith isn't robust, it doesn't sustain. Um, and so to honestly explore what it is that you believe and why you believe it and what the implications of that belief are for the kind of life that you live, I think is a vitally important kind of conversation. So what I want to do is I want to just offer some reflections, some observations uh, around what the implications of of hell theology have uh, for people's lives. And perhaps I want to start with this, that one of the things that happens when you believe, and I know this from my own experience, I don't have to study anything to know the answer to this question or to make this observation, 
But something happens when you are the ones who are going to heaven and there are other people that are going to hell. Um, because that's ultimately for people, not just of Christian faith, people of, of, of different faiths hold to this kind of idea, especially within more conservative or fundamentalist versions of different religious expressions. Uh, if you hold to this idea that you and the ones alongside you who you're with, who are like you, who are, see things the way that you do, um, you guys are the ones who are going to heaven and the people out there somewhere, they're the ones who are going to hell. Hopefully no one you know too well, too closely, because that gets a bit more painful and confronting. But but there's something that kind of happens in your own uh, psyche, I think. A kind of interesting arrogance emerges. And I don't necessarily mean arrogance in the sense that people strut around uh, obviously uh, full of themselves or whatever. But I think back to my earlier experience and just this knowledge that I was in somehow on the inside of something. My future, my eternal future was assured, but there were lots of people out there who weren't. Then really what comes out of that is I'm right. Even if I'm wrong about a bunch of stuff, I'm right about that. And other people out there are wrong about that. And that means my mission in life is to convince people of the thing that I'm right about so that they might agree with me and then therefore they will secure also. And there's a lot at stake, right? Because they will secure also their eternal future of escaping hell too. So not only do you have something that you're right about and other people are wrong about or at least unaware of or ignorant of, the consequences of that thing that you're right about uh, could not be bigger could not be more profound, more impacting, right? Eternal suffering. And and that kind of, I think that does something unhealthy to us in terms of the stance that we hold to other people and to the people beyond our own community. So we end up with this, this um, version of faith that says we have, we are the ones who are in, who have been saved, who are on our way to the good place. But those people out there are not the unsaved, the non-Christian, whatever it might be, um, and they are on their way to the bad place unless we convince them that we're right and they need to change uh, what they think and what they believe. Um, and it might that might seem like a little bit abstract, but there's a there's a tone, there's a there's a a subtlety to it sometimes, but there's this sense of elevation of oneself and one's own community. Uh, and so you'll often hear, you know, Christians and other religious folk, to be honest, who hold to this kind of very binary framework in very self-congratulatory uh, terms. Um, even when we try and make it like, hey, we're all just the same. It's just that I've recognized my need for for Jesus as my Lord and Savior uh, or whatever it might be. Um even if it's clouded in that kind of language, it's still the sense of inness and outness, of right and wrong, of I've got it and they don't have it and they need what I've got. Um, and there are also sorts of ways that starts to manifest. One in particular I want to talk about, and that is a kind of the attitude towards people of other faiths or of no faith at all. So one of the fruits of this is a kind of it's a battle. It sees the world in terms of some kind of battleground. Uh, this is certainly the language that I grew up with. A lot of the songs even, you know, and, and we, we talked a little bit a few episodes ago in, in, in The Shift, we talked about violence in scripture and the way that sometimes violence 
finds its way into the contemporary Christian imagination. And one of the ways it does that is through songs. And it's often through allegorizing or spiritualizing that kind of violence. And so the kind of Christianity that I grew up in uh, had a lot of battle songs, a lot of we're riding off to war. Now, they weren't literally meaning we're going to war, although Christians have literally meant that at times in the, Christ- in the history of the church. But it was a spiritual battle of some kind, and really the battle is for the souls of men and women, right? And and so if that's your if that's your framework, then every other religion, for example, uh, is an enemy to the rescuing of people's souls from hell, because if Jesus and and believing in Jesus, uh, or let's say you're in another religion and believing in your particular path is the only way to get to heaven, then everybody else who doesn't believe in that is not going to get to heaven. They're going to suffer forever in some kind of way. Well, then every other religious framework, every other religious tradition is getting in the way of people getting saved from hell, which means that every other religious tradition is in some way the enemy, even if we don't use that language necessarily, although sometimes it's very explicit. Uh, I mean, I have heard many times the kind of language towards uh, Islamic faith, the Muslim religion, uh, in in the Christian church. It's demonized, not just metaphorically, but literally in some circles of the Christian church. Allah, you know, is is characterized as some kind of demonic force. Uh, And ultimately that stems from this idea that religion is about escaping hell and you've got to your religion right, otherwise you don't escape hell. And so another religion that's rising up and converting people to it is simply stealing people from heaven and sending them to hell because the only way to hell is through Christianity in in this case. Um, That does nothing but foster um, tension and hostility between religious traditions. And so this kind of religious xenophobia um, we see manifest all the time. Uh, and, you know, I mentioned, I think, briefly on the last episode, uh, I'm not sure when you're listening to this, but in New Zealand we've just recently had, you know, a horrendous episode of of white supremacist terror and uh, mosque shootings in Christchurch. And it's been interesting, sad, embarrassing, angering for me, to observe the, some of the Christian conversation in relation to uh, the aftermath of this event. And so in the initial instant, there was just a mass outpouring of grief and sympathy and empathy and support and solidarity. But over the coming week or two, uh, as our Prime Minister, for example, uh, engaged in some symbolic acts of inclusion for those of Muslim faith, um, and one of those was a couple of minutes silence and the public broadcast of the Islamic call to prayer, um, the fragility and fear and um, battle mentality of some Christians came to the surface and messages began circulating on social media and via email about how this was in some way uh, all a part of, you know, some sinister plan uh, by which Islam was going to worm its way into our nation and and one of the reasons this is seen as so problematic for 
fundamentalist Christians in particular, but Christians who were, you know, circulating these messages and saying, no, we will not, we will not bow the head to Allah. You know, this kind of language, this this language that, that was clearly threatened in some kind of way by what was taking place, which, to be honest, were very minimal uh, sim- symbols of, of inclusion. Um, it, this kind of fear and fragility comes from, ultimately, well, it comes from a few things. Maybe in some sense it just comes from some base racism, but I, it's much it's more than that. Uh, th- and I think the belief in hell lies at the heart of some of it, which is to say that if faith in Jesus for conservative Christians is the only way to escape an eternity in hell, well then letting other religions start to have any kind of voice uh, is simply allowing space for people to be lured away from the true path to be deceived in some kind of way uh, and and therefore those other religious traditions are the enemy and that is the language that I certainly within the Pentecostal kind of church which is you know the, the kind of church that I've been immersed in for some of my life a significant portion of it uh, the literal demonization of other religions that other religions are represented by some kind of demonic beings all of that kind of language uh, simply unfortunately helps to fuel conflict, helps to foster hostility between people of different religious traditions. And I can only look at that and say that kind of fruit of a particular belief is at least, if, if I wasn't convinced by the text, uh, the Christian text, in terms of what to believe about this, I would be convinced by the fruit of that belief in this particular kind of case. Um, because I don't think it's good. I don't think it's healthy. Um, right. So that's one thing. That's one set of observations, if you like. The the kind of arrogance, if you like, even, I mean, that some might seem like an intense word to use, but I, t- I use it about myself and about a big portion of my own life. This arrogance to say, I am the in one, they are the out ones. I am the one who they need to listen to so they can hear that I'm right, so that they can be rescued from hell. And the way that spills over into this hostile language and attitude towards people of other faiths, those being the enemy of some kind. Right. The next observation I want to make is that one of the fruits of this kind of heaven, hell, hell is eternal suffering for unbelievers framework is the way it impacts on both social engagement, social justice, and also environmental concern. So, as I said earlier, if it boils down to escaping hell when you die, then really, why pour too much energy into social justice, into caring for the poor and the marginalised and, and, and those on the outer? Why put too much energy or resource into caring for the environment, into looking after the world that we live in, the physical earth, because really, none of those, all those things pale into insignificance. And that might seem like an overdramatization, but I don't think it is. Um, when I was doing my research, uh, one of the, um, you know, there's quotes that really stuck out to me from a, uh, a missionary back in the 1920s in one of the church movements that I was researching, who, who talked about, you know, uh, wanting to resist uh, 
any kind of work building up the charitable institutions like hospitals and schools. They, this particular um, missionary uh, from North America looked at the way in which some churches were essentially, in his mind, getting distracted by pouring their resources into hospitals and schools and charities and missions to the poor. Um, and that he was committed to ensure that the movement he was helping to coordinate would never become distracted by such things because ultimately this was about rescuing people from hell. Um, Now, that might seem like an old-fashioned kind of view, but just the other day I had a student, you know, I had done a lecture on how our spirituality and how our faith, uh, and in particular how the Christian tradition might shape a response in us towards the environmental crisis that we're currently facing and how we might begin to take some responsibility and some care for the natural environment that we live in and what that might mean for us. And one of the responses that came back, one of the written responses that that came back was, well, that's like nice and yes, I see that's a good point and we should do that. But ultimately, isn't this really about saving people from hell? So if we're going to put our resources somewhere, we better put it there. Uh, and and again, to me, this is when you look at the world we live in and the big questions that are currently sitting, the, the big um, concerns that are currently gripping the generation that we live in, uh, the concerns of the environment and what that's going to mean for our children and for our grandchildren. You can see, in fact, this kind of religious framework is a part of the problem. And I say that with all respect because it's my tradition and it's the one I grew up in and it's the one I've held to a particular version of for quite some time until I was able to pull that apart. Um, but it's part of the problem, it really is, because ultimately if all that matters is life after death, then it might be nice to look after things here and now. It might be nice to look after the poor. It might be nice to care for the planet. But really those things don't matter in the greater scheme of things. All right, so that's a couple of big ones. And I think from, I think looking at the world we live in today, those are two of the biggest and most pressing concerns that we have. Uh, the conflict and tension that's arising between people of different faiths. And not just between people of different religions, but even between people of religious persuasion and those who are agnostic or atheist. All of that tension is being pushed to the surface right now as this globalized world uh, thrusts us all together into this big melting pot and we are uh, rubbing shoulders with one another and trying to figure out how to negotiate this new world that we live in. Uh, I think that's one of the big issues pressing on us. It's one of the big issues shaping uh, global politics right now. Um, it's shaping North American politics. It's shaping what's happening in uh, Britain and Europe. Uh, it's having an impact all around the world. And it's been brought to bear in our very own country here in New Zealand, a small country, bottom of the planet. Um, it's come to our shores also. And the other big concern that we're facing right now is the environmental crisis and what we're going to do about that. So to me, this belief in hell is not just some sideline idea that it's like, oh yeah, we can just sort of disagree about that or we can have some conversations or whatever. I think that belief in hell as eternal suffering is directly linked to um, a lack of care for the planet and a lack of love for those who are not like us. All right. The other thing I want to say about this is perhaps more personal in this sense and that is that a belief in some kind of 
this really gets to our sense of what God is like. So, and I've mentioned this a few times along the way, because this is a big issue for me. If God is a God who sends people to hell forever to suffer forever, then that raises questions about the nature of what God is like and whether or not God is truly good. Now, some Christian theologians try to get around this by saying, no matter what God does, it is good, and therefore, of course, it's good because God has done it. Um, but as I've said before, that completely dismantles our ability to know anything about what is good, and I don't think that's a particularly helpful uh, biblical, Christian, whatever you want to call it, way of um, way of doing ethics, way of thinking about morality. Um, and so you have this God who is capable of this kind of action that seems so disproportionate and ultimately uh, creates this kind of internalized anxiety in people. And again, I've mentioned kind of anxiety a bit throughout this, this entire podcast journey so far. And I don't mean that people, everybody's walking around with clinical anxiety but I do mean that there's this constant unsettledness that sits under the surface. And often it's pushed down through just through sheer activity, sheer busyness uh, or, or bloody-mindedness or not wanting to acknowledge that this might be a problem. But ultimately, you are trying to have a loving relationship with a God who you know is capable of tormenting people forever or at least condemning them to an eternal, eternal torment. And I think that has to, whether you think it will or not, whether, no matter if you think you're saved by um, grace and you've prayed the prayer and you're in and other people are out, whatever, no matter what you think about that, there is always going to be under the surface somewhere uh, some doubts and some questions about the nature of God. Now, you might not be confronted with that for a long time. Uh, sometimes you'll see people confronted with this suddenly when a loved one that's very dear to them but that is not Christian um, ends up passing away. And suddenly it's not just those people out there somewhere, but it's someone very close to me who I love and we have to come face to face with whether or not we think God is the kind of God who is then going to meet that person uh, on the other side of death and then say, you know what, you weren't a Christian, you weren't in, um, so unfortunately you're going to hell forever. If that's the fundamental belief, then there's an internal, there, there absolutely is, whether you realize it or not, a set of questions about whether that God can be truly trusted, about whether I should be a bit fe fearful of that kind of God. And so the thing that flows out of this or is related to this kind of internalized and buried anxiety is, is a kind of fear-driven behavioral response. Um, this concern that if that's what God is like, then I've got to make sure I'm in. And one of the things that this happens to, to our belief, especially for people who believe that your future in heaven is largely determined by the things that you believe, well then doubt, questions, honesty, wrestling with whether or not we want to believe these things or not, all of those things are the slippery slope away from going to heaven when you die. Because if going to heaven is secured by believing the right things about God, about Jesus, and saying the right prayer and, and, and trusting in all of that, uh, well, then questioning any of those things threatens to pull the rug out from under that. And so a lot of people are simply too anxious or too afraid 
even if they wouldn't name it that way, too anxious or too afraid to question. And so you will hear often people uh, in positions of religious power in particular saying, don't question, don't ask that question, don't pull on that thread, just trust, just accept it, don't ask that question because there's, there's this worry or there's this concern that if we ask that question, everything will start to come apart. And if that, and if and if it all comes apart, and what's on the line here is our eternal destiny, well then, of course, don't pull on that thread, right? Don't ask that question. Um, but for me, that is a fearful way to go about uh, living out your faith. Now. Even for people who are like, well, I'm not a Christian because I'm trying to avoid hell. I'm a Christian because um, I love God and I like Jesus and whatever it might be. Um, but hell's just, a, you know, going to heaven when I die is an added bonus. Um, yeah, maybe. But it was interesting. I was having a conversation with someone the other day. And, you know, they weren't a big hellfire person. They weren't someone who went around, you know, trying to rescue souls from hell every day of the week. But they were like, if, if this is true, if, if perhaps the, the, the version of hell and the language of hell and this idea of eternal suffering that we've been handed in our religious tradition is in fact not the way things are, if that's not even what Jesus was talking about in the Christian text, the scriptures, well, then that kind of, it kind of changes everything about why I do what I do and how I engage with God when I do it, how I engage in my spirituality. Even though this person wouldn't have necessarily said they were a big hell, hellfire person, they weren't um, they weren't going around thinking in that framework all the time, but it was still sitting there under the surface. And so to say, what if God is not like that? What if God truly can be trusted? What if God truly is good? And what's on stake, what's at stake here and what's on the line here is not my eternal destiny, some kind of eternal suffering, but an inv- a truly an invitation to find life here and now and to live it well and to reject the, the ways of violence and dehumanization uh, and oppression um, that the hell language in the New Testament in particular is trying to uh, evoke and bring to mind. That's like a liberating experience and a liberating feeling. And I, and I know this from, again, and I've mentioned this before, the number of students that I have in classes who say, well, if this is true, if this point of view is true, and often I'm just presenting the point of views and asking what they think, and I say, if this point of view is true, well then, surely there's, why would I be a Christian? Which tells you that for all of the reasons about, that they might give for being a Christian, loving God, uh, enjoying life, I don't know, whatever reasons they might give. Ultimately, for many of them, those are all kind of attempts to paint out their paint their faith as being a really great thing but ultimately the reason they're a Christian is to not go to hell when they die and that's a fear-driven reason for being in a religion it's a fear-driven reason for any kind of spirituality and I think any kind of spirituality that is that's primary root is fear is profoundly unhealthy for us all right so there's a few consequences I'm talking about here a few implications for all of this and um, as I say, I am not trying to tell uh, everybody what to think, but I am trying to um, express uh, some of the ideas that I have come upon, that I have, that have emerged from me as I've allowed myself uh, to pull things apart and re-examine them again. 
And so what I discover in my Christian faith on the other side of hell is this profound, beautiful, but challenging invitation to live differently in the world. Not for the avoidant, not because of the fear of eternal punishment, but because there might truly be life found in a different way of being, a way that rejects oppression and dehumanization and violence, a way that rejects um, narcissism, xenophobia, racism, a way that instead uh, confronts those things, not just in people out there or even in systems out there, but in myself, uh, and asks me to be transformed. And that if I can do this, not from a root of fear, but of a root of acceptance and the desire for transformation, then spirituality and even the concept of salvation can be about this experience, this pathway of transformation, this pathway of being changed. Um, and in that sense then, healthy spirituality on the other side of hell can in fact be about the flourishing of human life, the flourishing in the human experience and the dismantling of those things that seek to destroy human life and human experience uh, and human relationships and the planet that we live on. So that's what I'm kind of interested in, and this brings up a whole new set of questions. Uh, one of those questions might be for you, well then, okay, what did, what's the whole death story of Jesus about dying on the cross and all of that? So that's something we're going to address in this podcast as well. But for the meantime, that's it. That's the end of our three-part series on hell. We'll be back picking it up in episode 13 with some new conversations uh, in relation to this. So I look forward to seeing you. I'm going to say look forward to seeing you, but technically I don't see you. I speak to you. You listen to me. Uh, but you know what I mean. We'll see you next time. Thanks very much. <laughs>